welcome to Feminists Without Mystique, a podcast where we process politics, sex, and the unrelenting firehose of bullshit in the news through an unapologetically feminist lens. Each week we begin by venting about the news, we go deep on one important issue, call out terrible things happening below the top headlines in a segment called We See You, and then we'll end with something hopeful. And this is the last time, uh, at least for for a little while that we record that intro and then don't actually do that content. Um, this is the last week uh, where we are lucky enough to be interviewing um, one of the wonderful authors participating in the Miami Book Fair. Uh, this week we're interviewing Paula Stone Williams. Uh, we hope you enjoy that interview. And just a reminder, if you're enjoying us, to rate, review, subscribe, recommend us. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, uh, tell your friends about us. It really uh, helps uh, spreading the word and ratings and reviews are the best way to help other people find us. So thank you. Without further ado, our interview with Paula Stone Williams. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Paula Stone Williams. Dr. Paula Stone Williams is an internationally known speaker on gender equity, LGBTQ advocacy, and religious tolerance. She's also a pastor and pastoral counselor in Boulder, Boulder County, Colorado. Paula has been featured in the New York Times, TED Women, TED Summit, TEDx Mile High, Red Table Talk, the Denver Post, the New York Post, New Scientist Magazine, Radio New Zealand, and many other media outlets. Her TED Talks have had more than 5 million views. Her latest book, As a Woman, is a moving memoir that explores her experience as a pastor transitioning from male to female. Welcome, Paula. Welcome. It's good to be with you. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you. Um, we both really, really enjoyed the book. It was truly a captivating, touching read. I genuinely enjoyed it from cover to cover. Um, your story and point of view are compelling, and it was so interesting to hear your perspective on privilege, having been perceived as a white man for so many years prior to your transition. I'm curious what the process of writing the book was like and what your motivation was for putting this book out there. Yeah, writing the book, um, it was hell, basically. That's no, no one writes a memoir because they want to. Uh, you know, it was, it was tough. I mean, it's a raw book and there was a lot of vulnerability in it. And fortunately, I have a good therapist. I wanted to write the book because... I'm really concerned about the divide we have in our nation right now. And I think the only way you really close the divide is through narrative. We're not going to debate our way out of anything. And I think if people can see their own story in my story, just as I might be able to see my story in theirs, that's the only way we stop screaming at each other and learn to see one another as human, that we're all in this together. And so that's what I was hoping more than anything else. I mean, I think the, the book is is just responding to the call of the hero's journey, which we're all called on to. It's just whether or not we find the courage to answer that call and how it includes the road of trials and the, the deep, dark cave and how it just goes on and on and on much longer and, and far more difficult than you might think. But eventually you do get to the Holy Grail and you do bring it back and give it as an offering to those from whom you have departed. And I think that's what the book is. It's the offering to those from whom I once departed. Yeah. Echoing Aaron, it was really um, beautifully, beautifully written. I am sure you've you've received this feedback as probably many women. It sounds like Kathy also in the book uh, like was chuckling sometimes as you would learn things kind of firsthand um, with a lifetime of male perspective, entering the, the sort of space and seeing the world anew. 
things dawning on you, like, wow, I'm not being heard or listened to in the same way, or why, like, why wasn't I invited to that meeting? That's my seat on the airplane. Um, I'm, I'm imagining these, these experiences kind of come to you uh, in big and small ways um, all the way through today. Um, it's probably kind of happening all the time, these different realizations or different things that are happening. And you have such a unique perspective on, on gender inequities. So I'm curious and kind of to your point that you just made, have you been able to effectively communicate these frustrations with within the evangelical community? And have, have any men that you've talked to kind of seemed to get it since writing this book? Um, well, the evangelical community doesn't have anything to do with me. So you know, it's pretty safe to say they're not, oh, I think a lot of them are quietly reading it. I mean, I'm hearing, I'm hearing from them through the grapevine. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, that world rejected me completely when I came out as trans, even a year before I actually transitioned. Mm -hmm. And do guys listen? It's really kind of fascinating. It depends on where you are in the world and with whom you're speaking. If you are in South America speaking to a group of engineers, yeah, not so much. If you are in Scandinavia uh, talking to a group of male educators, well, yeah, they've, they've kind of figured out a lot of these things. If you're in Southern Europe, you find a lot more misogyny than you do on the coast of the United States. So it really kind of depends on, on where, you, where you are. And I've heard from women on all seven continents uh, thanking me for, for my first TED Talk, the one that's had 4.3 million views. And they, you know, they, they're just grateful that someone can validate their experience. And it's so fascinating to me when I'm doing corporate speaking, how often it's the men who will take me on in the Q&A. And, oh, I'll take all comers. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, you, you want to you wanna try to argue with me about this? Oh, you're going to be sorry you did that. <laughs> and I, and I, I take great delight in it. Occasionally, I don't even have to do it. I was speaking to a retreat of all CEOs, all from the Northeastern United States, and about 70% were men. And a lot of them were taking me to task for what I was saying. But it was a retreat that their wives were at. And I loved it because the wives were standing up and saying, be quiet and listen to her. We've been trying to tell you this stuff forever. You know, it's kind of the same as Kathy for the first couple of years post-transition when we were still together. You know, she would just be rolling her eyes all the time. I'm like, please don't kill me. I, you know, I, I, I know I just deserve every one of those dagger-like looks because, you know, as a guy, you're just sure you... You're confident that you get it, and you're clueless. You're, you're utterly clueless. I feel like I still am in a lot of ways. I'm not a cis woman. I don't have a cis experience. I come from the borderlands between genders. I live in the liminal space. I, I brought a lot of male privilege with me, but I sure as hell see a lot more of it now than I saw in my previous life. So I'm wondering, there was one quote that stood out to me, healthy spirituality can be a solution to the damage done by bad religion. Um, what would you say to queer and trans youth who might be in evangelical households or communities who do not support them because of their either their gender identity or their sexual identity? Yeah, um, I think it's best to look at the macro picture, to look at the entire picture. That there are, in fact, nine tribal species on Earth. And that was identified by E.O. Wilson, the sociobiologist who won a Pulitzer Prize, indicating that 
the key social unit for the human species is not the nuclear family, but the tribe. And of those nine tribal species, eight of them have evolved as you would expect them to. Enemy comes into the camp, the tribe unites, they defeat the enemy, some of the tribe dies, life goes on. So that unfortunately, the ninth tribal species, he calls them eusocial species. The ninth tribal species has evolved to believe that an enemy is necessary for the tribe to survive. And where no natural enemy exists, they create one. He says, we don't get a hold of that. We lose the species and probably the planet. And obviously that species is us. So you look at, well, what in the Western world are the most egregious examples of creating enemies that don't exist? It is in fact the fundamentalist forms of the desert religions. All three desert religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all three Abrahamic religions began as religions of scarcity because, hey, they began in the desert. So it's understandable that they started as religions of scarcity. There aren't enough resources to go around. Got to take care of me and mine. But in their more generous expressions, now they are no longer religions of scarcity. In fact, if you take a look at more liberal Christianity, it was the black church and the mainline white Protestant church that, that made sure that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. Unfortunately, however, in their fundamentalist forms, all three of the desert religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, remain religions of scarcity. And in the United States, there's only one of those that has a major impact, and it's evangelicalism. So let's take a look at our current circumstances. We've got, you know, I've lost track. You have to check almost every day on, on the new numbers of laws that have been passed and the numbers of states in which they were passed. Last time I looked, it was 17 laws in seven states with another 30 states having another 250 laws pending. All of these are targeting transgender kids, the most at-risk group for suicide in the United States. Where is that coming from? And I find it interesting. It's not coming from where you might think. It is not coming from conservative Republicans. Study was done not long ago, and 66% of conservative Republicans believe that trans people should have the same civil rights as everybody else. Even among Trump voters, they did a survey of the 10 swing states of Trump voters and found that 61% of them believe that transgender people should have the same civil rights as anybody else. So where's the opposition coming from? It's coming from Republican state legislatures, but who's driving it? It's evangelical Christians, 84% of whom believe that gender is immutably determined at birth, 61% of whom believe that we've already given too many legal rights to transgender people, and yet only 25% of whom actually know someone who is out as a transgender or gender non-binary person. So what's happened is once marriage equality changed the playing field for LGBTQ, Q, well, LGB world, they transferred their enemy to the T and the Q world, and or the, the T and the gender non-binary world, I should say. Q is a more umbrella term for all of us now. Uh, but that is where they turn their attention, really only over the last couple of years. This was not something that got much of their attention, let's say, previous to 2016. So we're the enemy du jour at the moment, and that's awful. And in that regard, evangelicalism is being used for evil. On the other side of that, I believe we are inherently a spiritual species. 
if you think about what brought us together beyond the level of blood kin as a species, what brought us into tribes, it wasn't the search for safety. It was the search for meaning. I mean, think Stonehenge or the carved heads in Rapa Nui or burial mounds for indigenous Americans. It was man's search for meaning that brought us together in a tribe. And I believe we still find it easier to work out our search for meaning in community. And I think healthy religious communities can be places we can do that in safety and with a lot of mag magnanimity and generosity. And that's the kind of church I happen to pastor now. We really don't, don't care a whole lot what you believe. I mean, we are church, we are Christian, but we just love coming together to try to figure out how to get along as humans, to try to figure out the meaning of life together, and to try to leave the world a better place than we found it. So I believe religion can be used for good. Unfortunately, the conservative side of particularly Christianity in the United States is right now being used for evil. That was a very long answer. I promise I won't give long answers again. <laughs> no, it was fascinating. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we like long answers. And there, there's a lot there. And you actually touch on a couple of a couple of our questions uh, in your answer, um, because I really did like in your book where you were, especially when you were talking, differentiating between spirituality um, and fundamentalism. And I think that's mm -hmm. such an important thing to kind of think about and for people to remember, um, especially when we're in such a divisive time. Um, to your point about sort of the even evangelical community driving, driving policies that are um, detrimental, to, to say the least. Um, in your book, at one point, you say, we underestimate the power of evangelicals at our own peril. And from my perspective, I, the frustrating thing for me is that I feel like I knew for I've known for a long time how um, dangerous because I know how big and influential and rich these evangelical churches are. Um, I think probably since like maybe watching Jesus Camp and like I don't know mm -hmm. that documentary. Like, sure, you yeah. know it, I remember that kind of chilling me to the bone. But when we think about the gerrymandering and the way that our legislative systems are giving way outsized influence to smaller states with conservative populations, and the majority of people are stuck under their thumb, it's just hard. It's hard. It's how, how the question I feel like is how do we respond to that? How do we reach this population of people? Um, when you say we underestimate the power of evangelicals at our own peril, like who? Who precisely do you think is underestimating evangelicals? And what does a properly calibrated assessment and response look like? That's a marvelous question. I actually had this conversation a couple of hours ago in a, a monthly event that is done for past TED speakers. So, you know, this is one of those groups that you come into and, and you just feel like an absolute idiot because, <laughs> you know, these are the people who, who invented air and, you know, and, and you're, you're coming. In fact, I loved it when my son and I were at the TED Summit a few years ago. One guy's talking about working in the Higgs boson. Another guy's talking about having worked with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda on Hamilton. And they said, and, and why did the two of you do a TED Talk? And my son said, because my dad transitioned genders and I got sad. Oh. <laughs> it's like, I don't know why we're there, but we're there. And we were talking about exactly this issue, how particularly, unfortunately, the way our founding fathers, um, Hamilton, Madison, Hamilton had, I think, a lot of impact on it. 
it was the Senate that really did us in and the way that we we put that together. So there is weight to the 30 states that teach that a man is supposed to be in charge of a woman at home, at church, and by extrapolation in every other part of life. And we don't recognize that this is, in fact, the major religious teaching in 30 states of the United States. We don't realize that because the intellectual elite uh, of the coasts, the Pacific Northwest, or pretty much most of the West Coast, and certainly Washington to Boston, that part of the world does not understand the impact of conservative Christianity in the other parts of the nation. You know, I was spent 35 years in the New York City area. Exactly 9% of the population of Long Island are anything other than Catholic or Jewish. And they don't get, and, and Catholics there tend to be very, very liberal, far more than in middle America. They just don't get the kind of power. It's frustrating to me because I worked pretty hard in the Biden camp. I, I spoke at the uh, uh, inaugural prayer service in uh, January, and I speak for events they put on occasionally throughout the year. But every time I want to say something at all negative about evangelicalism, it gets pulled from the docket. And it's like, folks, um, have you noticed how the Republicans in the evangelical world play this game? Um, it, we, we don't get anywhere by not mentioning the root of the problem. And again, the root of the problem is not Republicans. The root of the problem is in evangelical Christianity, creating enemies that don't exist. I don't know of any way to deal with that other than people like me willing to do what I do. I mean, I get paid really big bucks to speak at corporations, conferences, universities all over the world. I go to Christian universities pro bono because I'll even pay my own way to get there. Because if the, if the students get to see me, meet me, listen to me, ask me questions, well, suddenly I'm not the narrative that's been taught to them. And they realize I'm relatively as healthy or as unhealthy as they are. And that changes the narrative. In fact, that's really why I wrote the book, because I think the book is not so much about being trans as it is about being courageous enough to go under the hero's journey. And I think that is just a universal human need and a human story. And so I hope it gets into the hands of more and more of that population, though, you know, at this point, likely that hasn't happened in large numbers yet. Wonderful. I think that makes a lot of sense, particularly when you think about the fact that people are significantly more likely to support rights for trans individuals, for LGBT, uh, LGB individuals if they know someone personally or have met someone exactly. personally. So right. it's very important work that you're it doing. It is interesting. You know, we as humans will take in new information, but we won't take it in unless it comes to us in a non-threatening way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people today don't seem to understand that on either side of the equation. If you are debating, you are instantly shutting people down. We also have a myth that's probably started 500 years ago, that we as a species are more interested in the truth than anything else. It's not the case. We're more interested in belonging than anything else. And we will ignore the truth to not lose our belonging. And we see that in so many ways in our culture right now in the midst of the COVID pandemic. 
But we, we need to understand that the truth does not carry as much weight in the human experience as the fear of abandonment, the fear of being overwhelmed because you've been abandoned, the fear of losing your tribe. And so I think the only way we get that message across is one person at a time, one narrative at a time. Absolutely. Yeah, there was like a universality to your the, your story uh, the, or the hero's journey, which I really, I, yeah. I hope I hope people pick up and, and connect to that as they're reading your specific, your specific journey. It was very, I was thinking about things going on in my own life or in the past and um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That's what you hope. (laughs) Yeah. So in the book, you spoke to the fact that you began talking to some of the pastors at the Orchard Group about your support of LGBTQ people in your later years with the organization, and that you had actually come to a supportive theological position in the 1980s. While the Orchard Group did not become affirming of LGBTQ people in your time there, did you have any opportunities to preach messages of acceptance or provide pastoral counseling to LGBTQ plus individuals prior to your coming out? Yeah, sure did. I'm pretty tough on myself because I was not public in my opposition. I really thought I could change things from the inside. And I knew in my heart of hearts that major change never comes from the inside and always comes from the outside. And I think there was also a cop out in that. I think I was comfortable. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I can work toward this, you know, but but right now we would lose 80% of our financial support if I came out publicly, which is probably what the number was. Now I look back, I realize lives were at stake and I think, yeah, you should have given up 80% of your financial support. You should have downsized to be able to be public about what you're saying. Instead, the organization's every bit as big as it was when I was there and they are still not clearly not open and affirming. One of the dark little secrets of the large evangelical churches is they will all tell you that they welcome everyone, but you have to dig beneath the surface to realize that they in fact are not. Of the 100 largest churches in the United States, 99 are not LGBTQ affirming, though only about 10 of them will admit that. You know, most of them know about me. All you have to do is ask them, well, oh great, so Paula would be allowed to preach here? And uh, you'll see stunned silence. Uh, you know, no, there's, there's, and I've preached in three of the 10 largest churches in the United States. It's not because I don't have the skill. Um, it's because now I'm not in the gender that would allow me to preach there. So yeah, that, that world is, is uh, lying through their teeth most of the time. I wish I had been far more out far earlier, but I hired a guy uh, to work with one of our churches decades ago who I knew was gay. He told me when we did the interview, you know I'm gay. I said, yep, I am. And he said, you're hiring me anyway. I said, "Mm mm-hmm, I am. And I said, if we run into issues with it, uh, we'll deal with that later. And, you know, he reminds me that I did that. And I know I did that, but I did it quietly. I did not do it boldly. And so I, I can't say that I even take any solace in that. Yeah, you you are definitely tough on your on yourself in, in spots for sure throughout the book, and I'm sure it's 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 just been I can't I can't imagine. Uh, although I, I listened to part of it, I have the book here, but I also listened to the the audio book, uh, and there were moments where you were getting uh, I, I at least felt like I perceived you getting emo- emotional, and when oh, you were sort of God, we different- we had to we had to <laughs> cut so many times and. The engineer I had is wonderful. He, he 
uh, has done over 3,000 books for Simon & Schuster and some of the biggest books in the world. The only reason I got him is because he lives about half an hour from here. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I would go to redo stuff and he would say, uh, or I would ask when we finished, do we need to redo it? And he would say, that's up to you. But I actually think, um, he said, I liked the book when I read it, but I love the book now. And, you know, there, there is a lot of emotion in the audio version of the book. Yeah, there's a lot. There were a lot of tears. There were a lot of stopped takes and starting back up again. And a lot of times we let it go. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you did. I, I, I love audiobooks because, I, you know, it's, it complements what you're doing. You can multitask and all yeah. that. So I was listening and there were a couple of times where I just was, you know, stopped in my tracks. I was just like, ooh, that is that is powerful or that's tough or, you know, just, yeah. So that was, I, and to listeners, the audiobook is great. Uh, and Paula reads it herself. Uh, so it's good. Um, to the, this might be, I don't want to lean too much into like, you know, how hard you are on yourself, but you, when you spoke about not having, um, the power to empower people anymore, um, and that must feel like, and you know, must have felt and still feel like an extraordinary loss. You said, uh, I better live a long time because I have a lot to make up for. I was wondering, in terms of regrets, do you have any regrets about some of the folks you you helped empower in your career? Like the specific, I'm thinking specifically of that CEO who betrayed you, um, who you hired, and the people on the board who you helped place there and you know, just people who you can't say hi to in the airport anymore, who were members of your community, members of your, right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I knew probably by name, I don't know, five, 6,000 people. I've had some <laughs> substantive conversations, five, 6,000 within my denomination. Yeah. I've had substantive conversations with exactly three of them post-transition. Wow. So that world utterly and completely rejected me. And I wish I had, I think instead of, um, yeah, I do. I regret putting that person into leadership. Frankly, I wish I'd put his wife into leadership instead. Um, mm -hmm. I've not ever said that publicly, but I really don't mind saying it. I think she would have been far, far more likely to have been willing to pay the price <laughs> to go ahead and bring about the changes that need to have been brought about. But... I didn't do that. Uh, we had a woman on the board who I wish I had promoted to chair the board, you know, which I could have done easily and did not do that. I think she also would have taken a stand that I wasn't willing to take. So, yeah, I, I do regret um, a handful of the people who I empowered back then. Yeah, I have never been asked that question before, but it's a good question. And that is, in fact, the truthful answer. Yeah, I think a lot of us, I think every human probably has a plethora of things we regret and hindsight is twenty twenty, and um, you know, we all go through our evolutions. So I think it's also important to focus on how much good you are, are doing now and, and all of that. Um, one thing in the book that I really liked was when you, uh, you reference, if you say yes to this, will this decision enhance your life or diminish it? Um, I'm going to steal this framework uh, for making decisions in my life <laughs> because I'm indecisive and I have my ha. Uh, when were some times that applying this thinking led you down a different path than you may have taken otherwise? 
Yeah, I think, um, boy, I wish I'd learned that question earlier. I picked that up from the Jungian analyst, James Hollis, whose work is not real well known, but it's utterly brilliant. And I, I, I'm not sure which one of his books that's in. It might be Swamplands of the Soul. Um, no, it's, but yeah, whatever. It's uh, H-O-L-L-I-S. Um, I loved it when I saw it just because notice the question is not, does this make my life easier? Does this make my wife life more lucrative? Um, what you're asking when you ask, ask that is, does this make my life more authentic or not? You know, I, I think wisdom comes from the assimilation of suffering. We all suffer, but a lot of us don't assimilate our suffering. Uh, when a wound comes to us, we don't allow it to get beneath our ego level. We react, we respond defensively out of our ego. But if you can really deeply sleep on it, you can allow the words, whatever they are, to get beneath your ego level to the level of your soul. And there you can assess their accuracy or their inaccuracy. What do you need to take in? What do you not need to take in? And that is how we, we develop wisdom. And so for me, I knew probably in my early 50s, I began to know, I, I think it was actually reading Richard Rohr's uh, Falling Upward. He says at one point, past midlife, you find that you have fewer friends but deeper friendships, that you're not nearly as concerned about being right as you are about being in relationship, that you no longer look outside yourself for your sense of self-worth, but deep inside your own soul. And he said, you realize that you don't always have an option when you are called to something. And for me, the question that had to be answered with that has always been, call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. So does this des decision move me in the direction of authenticity or does this decision move me away from the direction of authenticity? If it moves me toward it, it enhances my life. If it moves me away from it, it diminishes my life. It's, it's a great, it's a great framework for, for moving. Um, yeah, I love it. I, yeah. I actually just used it. I'm a pastoral counselor by trade, and I just used it with a client uh, just the other day. I, I find I use it often. One question I have, um, you talk a, lot, a fair amount about confidence um, and how we teach our sons to be confident, but we mm -hmm. teach our daughters to be perfect, which as uh, an oldest and um, perfectionist in school, yeah, that, that rung true, um, I think definitely trying to be a perfectionist all the way through school and college and then coming out the other side and being like, ah, what now, now I did all that. I, surely there's a beautiful, bright, shiny future awaiting me. And you're like, Oh, what was that all for? Why did I stress about everything? Anyway, um, that struck, that struck a chord with me for sure. Um, I, so I'd just like to hear more because I, I agree that instead of when you said that the important thing is to teach our daughters to be persistent instead of perfect. Um, Persistence is important, um, I think, especially for women. But there's a trap with persistence. I think persistent women are often seen as as bitchy or competitive, lacking chill, cold and unrelatable, <laughs> annoying, not a team player. I'm just thinking of a lot of terms that get thrown around from the corporate world to academia. Um, and 
persistence might be perceived as prickliness. Um, if you were raising a girl in 2021, um, someone who's maybe in elementary school, how would you teach persistence and instead of perfection? I have five granddaughters all between the ages of 11 and 13. We talk about this all the time. I have them for three or four weeks every summer. And I encourage them to be ambitious. I encourage them to own what they know. I encourage them to say, I've got this, even when they don't have it. <laughs> and I love it when they do. They're all strong children. That helps. They all have fathers who have empowered them. That helps tremendously. But they are, three of them are children of color. And, you know, we all know the reality is that they'll have a more difficult time than the two who are not, uh, who are white. And so I, I really, I think we need to focus more on, yes, those things are going to happen. It is the way it is. But it's not the devil wears Prada. You know, I mean, if you, if you think about it, um, you know, what if Finland, Norway, Iceland, Germany, Taiwan, and New Zealand have in common? All six of those countries have handled COVID extremely well. All six of them also have a woman who's prime minister. Every one of those women has an alpha personality, or if you don't like that term because it's patriarchal, an agentic personality. All six of them also have extraordinary levels of humility. If you take a look at strong alpha women, you find far more often than with men, they will have those paradoxical strengths of great confidence coupled with great humility. You know, one of the things I love about particularly Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand or Angela Merkel is that they're willing to say very quickly, whoop, that didn't work, went the wrong, the wrong direction there, we got to make a shift. And then, you know, you take a look at how, oh, you know, let's say Brazil, the United States and Great Britain handled the first wave of the coronavirus. And, you know, was there an ounce of ability, of ability to admit they'd gone down the wrong pathway? No, not in any one of those three nations at that point. So I think it's important to point out to our daughters that yes, there is a contingent to the population that will use those words regarding them, but that there will be more who will see them as people of great confidence, but also people of significant humility. All right. So you got to bear with me, Paula, because this is a long question. Okay. <laughs> I had a few studies I wanted to reference and I didn't want to cut any of them. So sure. All right. So there are several instances where you reference the notion of women not supporting other women, including saying that one area in which women create their own inequity is in not empowering one another. Um, in my personal experience, I haven't found there to be much truth in this, particularly in my professional life where I've experienced support from women and condescension from men, to put it lightly. Um, but I did want to challenge my assumption. I looked into it. I found that uh, women leaders who show they value diversity in the workplace receive lower competency ratings than male leaders who do the same. Um, in fact, men's performance ratings actually increase when they show they value diversity in the workplace. Additionally, there are studies that show that men engage in indirect aggression like gossiping and social exclusion at similar or even sometimes higher rates than women, but it's still widely believed that women are meaner to one another. These beliefs are so pervasive that even preschoolers think that girls are more likely than boys to engage in 
relational aggression, such as excluding others despite evidence to the contrary. Additionally, when women work with a higher percentage of women, they experience lower levels of gender discrimination and harassment. When women have women supervisors, they report receiving more family and organizational support than when they have male supervisors. And a preponderance of studies show that when more women are in management positions, the gender uh, pay gap is smaller. Interestingly, and to support your point, there was a study that examined how professors viewed their PhD students, um, and that found that despite having equal publication records and levels of work, um, the older generation female professors tended to believe that their female PhD students were less committed to their careers than their male students were. So it appears that while there are definitely some instances of women not supporting other women, possibly with a generational skew, overall this seems to be more of a problem of perception rather than practice. I'm curious, um, in light of the, the information I presented as well as your lived experience, what your thoughts are on women empowering one another, where the problems lie, and what solutions there may be. And I'm done. <laughs> sure. Um, a lot of times I'll hear those statistics mentioned. And I wrote that part from my own personal experience. Right. And also, you know, there's a, a story that I think is, is uh, yeah, worth telling. At this point, I was being interviewed by K.K. Otteson for the Washington Post. And she said, I, I don't find that to be true in my experience. And I said, I do, as a woman, find it very much to be true. And we finished talking that day and we had, additional conversation scheduled for the next afternoon. And so when we talked the next afternoon, she said, I was talking with Madeline Albright this morning, as one does. And <laughs> um, yeah. And she said, I was asking her about this. And she said, oh, don't you remember me saying that there's a special place in hell reserved for women who don't support one another? You know, I listened to my granddaughters talk just this past weekend. I listened to them talk all summer long. And the complexities, the you're in, you're not, the lack of room for smart girls in the room, uh, the competition between young girls, in my experience, has been far greater. My girls both talk about that having been far more of a problem than my son. And I clearly, in my own life, there's no comparison between how I saw men empower one another. Men are interested in knowing who the alpha is, but then they'll rank themselves accordingly. As I often say, um, you know, it's they get in the huddle, smack each other in the butt, and then they advance the quarterback and the ball down the field. So they're, they're aware of, of who's in charge, but they empower one another. And my own experience is that women don't, and I have spoken to about 40, 50 corporations at this point uh, in person, as well as many since COVID began. And there, I, it's harder to, to get a read. But when I'm at the corporate level and I ask for a show of hands, um, the show of hands is not agreeing with these statistics I've seen recently. And so, you know, I, I, I use a lot of statistics in my conversations, but I also, um, you know, I don't believe that gender is a social construct, for instance. I believe that we have a predisposition before experience to certain types of behavior, most of us, based on our gender. And 
you would find many sociology departments at many universities that would disagree with me on that. Um, you won't find many mothers of elementary age children who have both boys and girls who would disagree with me about that. It is, um, I don't, I don't think we, we really have the, the full truth about that out there yet. I've talked a good bit with Joan Williams about this when we did a TED talk together and I've pretty much devoured every one of her works on this subject, but then she shifted now to talk more about class issues than she is talking about gender issues. But I, so yeah, I've seen the stuff. Um, it's not been my own experience. Gotcha. And it is an interesting point you bring up the competitive, um, the competition factor, because I do think we allow there to be more respected men in a room than potentially respected women in a room. And the idea that you might need to prove yourself more as a woman, whereas a, a, a white male can just kind of waltz into a room and there he is. <laughs> it does feel like such a such an important thing to get more of a clear read on, I think, and in, in, um, more studies should be done. Um, I certainly have anecdotal evidence on both sides in terms of uh, supportive female bosses, uh, some very overwhelmingly positive and... Uh, the other way around but it's uh yeah so that i look forward to there being to this being a subject that gets gets some more attention um hopefully in the coming years um yeah. but paula this has been so great having you i we we went even over um i think we we told we told you it would be 30 minutes but this has been so <laughs> <laughs> this has been so fun um and thank you so much for taking the time um and Good luck with the rest of you. Are you, you're, I'm assuming still on this book tour, but I just, uh, I hope that you continue to find um, success and that more and more people read, read this book because it's, there's so many like universal, there's a universality to it. Um, and it's so timely and important. Thank you so much. It's been delightful being with you. just one of the many authors from around the world participating in the Miami Book Fair 2021, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. She is so looking forward to sharing her work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and online. Please visit miamibookfair.com for more information and follow them at Miami Book Fair, hashtag Miami Book Fair 2021. If you haven't already, Please check out our other interviews with authors participating in the Miami Book Fair, Rafia Zakaria, Against White Feminism, Notes on Disruption, Sandra M. Gilbert and Susan Gubar, Still Mad, American Women Writers and the Feminist Imagination, and Zakia Dalila Harris in her novel, The Other Black Girl. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled rants on... Uh, the fire hose of BS happening in the news and online and the WCUs, they'll all be back next week. Feminists Without Mystique is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.com slash podcasts.